today's guest on Keen on Yoga is Dr. Michael Burley. Uh, Michael is an Associate Professor of uh, Religion and Philosophy at Leeds University and a very, very well-published. I remember reading his book, um, what's it called, Hatha Yoga, Context and Practice, uh, and it really influenced my early journey with yoga, I have to say. And subsequent to that, uh, michael has been published with uh, Bloomsbury for a couple of books and Rutledge and uh, some great tomes in there and... Um, I really recommend you to dive into some of the other kind of hefty work that he's done, um, such as contemporary religious forms of life, Wittgenstein. If you can stomach Wittgenstein, then you're really, <laughs> you've really done well in life. Um, and uh, Rebirth in the Stream of Life, which I have to say, I have read this one and it's also fantastic. Um, so without further ado, welcome uh, to the Keenan Yoga podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me, Adam. It's, it's yeah, a pleasure to be here. Coming on. So I suppose I'll straight away I'll just dive into the main subject. And I know you've spoken about this many times already, but for our audience that might not be familiar and we're hearing this, these words banded, I suppose what I could say is that yoga has expanded now and people are becoming more more aware of the philosophy behind it and more aware of certain terms. Like I think when I started, you know, unless it was just me, people had never heard of Samkhya philosophy, right? Now now we're hearing, you know, just in the general terms, you know, a lot more about the Samkhya philosophy particularly. Um, you just want to kind of maybe say a few, I mean, a few words. I know you've written whole books about this, but, but on the, the <laughs> basics so people can get a grasp, first of all, our listenership on, on the, the, the basic rudiments of what this, what this means for, for yoga. Well, yes. I mean, for a, for a yoga audience or a primarily yoga audience, the uh, probably the best way of introducing Sankhya is to say that uh, the uh, the classical yoga of Patanjali is itself a form of Sankhya. Uh, at least that's the way that it's it's traditionally mm. uh, presented. It's presented uh, in the, within the uh, the primary commentary itself as a an exposition of Sankhya, um, and so. A common way of characterizing the relation between yoga and Sankhya has been that uh, Sankhya is more concerned with the the conceptual framework. We might even say the sort of theoretical uh, and conceptual dimensions of the of the system, uh, whereas yoga um, yoga practice, especially meditation practice, is more associated with, as I've just indicated, the, the practical side. Um, and, and, and I think it's a perfectly reasonable mm. way, at least as a starting point, you know, for characterizing the relationship between Sankhya and yoga is to say that they are part of two parts of a comprehensive system. Um, and that system combines elements of philosophical theory and conceptualization on the one side that's primarily associated with Sankhya and meditation practice on the other, um, which is more associated with the term yoga um, and then we find you know a number of different uh, texts traditional texts in which these dimensions these aspects the practical and the theoretical are presented um, and those those texts are more mm. or less compatible with one another but it's uh, but that, that's what's, that's one way of um, at least mm. uh, getting the ball rolling as it were in, in sort of characterizing them yeah 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 and um, is it would it be right to suggest that the Samkhya is a kind of philosophical underpinning of of the whole of the philosophical viewpoint of of uh, Indian classical philosophy? Would you say that might be making a slightly grand claim for for Samkhya, but uh, but it but it is certainly okay. it's certainly extremely mm. important and and pervasive in its in its influence. So I wouldn't I wouldn't mm. characterize mm. it as the, as sort of underpinning the whole of classical 
Indian philosophy. Um, but the 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 uh, the primary ideas, the key um, sort of concepts of Sankhya, go back a long way. Um, we can trace them to at least the early Upanishads, uh, probably eight or seventh uh, or eighth century BCE, um, and and hmm. at the time when the, the Upanishad, those early Upanishads were being composed, there wasn't really um, you know a strong systematic Indian philosophical tradition. It was more like that. It was burgeoning. It was starting to grow. It was developing at that time. So we do find traces of Sankhya thought right back at the beginnings, uh, I would say, of the formation of the Indian philosophical tradition. Um, so to that, to that extent, you know, it's it's uh, it's it has a strong part to play in the formation and origination of Indian philosophy. But there were other elements there too. Mm. So there were, there were also the, the sort of early sources of what came to be uh, different systematizations of Vedanta. Um, we, we might think in, in terms of uh, Advaita Vedanta, for example. You know, you can you can trace n- notions mm. of Advaita Vedanta, non-dualist Vedanta philosophy, to the early Upanishads as well. And and so for that reason, well, for that and, and some other reasons, it would be it would be misleading to say that Sankhya is the philosophy of whether it be the Upanishads or certainly Indian philosophy more generally. You've got these different sources, different sources kind mm. of flowing mm. into a into a longer a longer tradition. Mm. So, what are the key concepts if you could put your finger on it of Sankhya, and how does and maybe comparing those to, to for people to get an idea as to? I mean, I asked that question, I suppose, specifically but misleadingly in a way to say Vedanta, right? And and how how you know Samkhya correlates within the frame, the general framework. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, Sankhya philosophy is best known for being a, a dualist system of philosophy and i think that's um a perfectly uh, legitimate way of characterizing it um so two two primary uh, principles that are irreducible you know not reducible to anything more foundational fundamental and and those primary principles uh co-fundamental principles are in the sanskrit uh, purusha on the one side and prakriti on the other they're the the primary terms that are used and exactly how to interpret those concepts is is of course you know it's a big a big interpretive task when it comes to trying to fathom out what's going on in the sankhya philosophy mm. but um but I, I i could uh i i i would be inclined to um describe purusha as the source of consciousness um one could even just say consciousness or pure consciousness or something like that but uh, just to hedge my bets a little bit i think i would say the source of consciousness um and prakriti as the source of everything that is experienceable you know by consciousness um and also the 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 sort of conditions that have to be in place in order for anything to become experienceable at all Mm. um so as a very a somewhat loose description, uh, we could call Prakriti the source of objectivity and uh, Purusha is the source of subjectivity. Mm. Hmm. And when you get when when those when those two principles come together in some sense of coming together, mm. um, 
the the possibility of experiences there mm. uh, because you've got a you've, you've got the source of subjectivity so the source of um of be, being able right. to experience something on, yeah, on the one yeah. side and the possibility the possibility of being experienced on the other and so experience can emerge out of that that conjunction that's a great definition but it's, that's uh, that's pretty deep um what 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 <laughs> What is the reason in the first place that these are given in the metaphysical sense in Samkhya for this duality, that it comes out of... I mean, because people think that of Samkhya as... An, and some people say that Samkhya is atheistic, but it's definitely God in, as a source principle of Purusha, right? I'm going to ask you a little bit more about that in a second. But, but God is definitely in there. I mean, does he play a, I mean, a role in the metaphysics of it? I mean, how does two things come out of one thing? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, yes. So the role of of of, of God or the Lord or um, the term Ishwara mm, in yeah. Sankhya and Yoga is, is not is not a straightforward one. So uh, so let's let's just dwell on that for a for a moment. Um, so I haven't specifically uh, mentioned the titles of of key Sankhya texts, but let me just get two on the table, as it were. Um, so one known as the Sankhya Karika, dating from, we don't know exactly, but roughly 4th, 5th, possibly 6th century CE, you know, in the common era. Um, but it claims, the Sankhya Karika claims, or the author of it claims, to be expounding a system of thought that was earlier than the text itself. So the, the author is not claiming to be original, uh, but rather summarising, condensing earlier ideas ideas from a from a source that we don't we no longer have so um, we can't compare Sankhya Karaka with the earlier source that it's claiming to be derived from um, and that and the Sankhya Karaka comprises 72 in some edition 73 verses quite quite dense um, they require a commentary you know to be properly understood or yeah. to be filled out it's pretty as, dense yeah, yes, yes. As, <laughs> Yeah, as, as is often yeah. the case, um, but that, that's that's one text, and 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 um, it's attributed to that the 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 name of the author is Ishwara Krishna. Mm. Um, we shouldn't we, we should just sort of bracket that for a moment. Not the, the fact that he's got the word Ishwara in his name is is kind of neither here nor there when it comes to um, the presence of Ishwara within the system itself. But the the, the author's name is Ishwara Krishna. Um, and, and we, we, we think that roughly around the same time uh, was when the, uh, the, the Yoga Shastra uh, was also being composed. Now, the term Yoga Shastra, as you may know, is, is, is these days used for what we used to and still do uh, quite commonly refer to as the Yoga Sutra mm -hmm. plus the, commentary. Plus the, mm -hmm. the, the earliest commentary, mm -hmm. the, the, comment, the commentary that has sort of probably apocryphally been attributed to Vyasa. Um, so it's sometimes known as the Vyasa Bhashya, uh, but sometimes also just as known as the Yoga Bhashya. The comment, the, the sort of foundational, the first commentary on the Sutra collection. Um, so that combination of, of texts, the, the, the sutras themselves, 195 or sometimes 196 sutras, plus the commentary on them known as the Yoga Shastra. Mm -hmm. um, and... And, and traditionally attributed to Patanjali, mm. um, at, at least at least the the sutras have traditionally been attributed to Patanjali. The commentary traditionally attributed to Vyasa, but 
recent, relatively recent scholarship by primarily by Philippe Maas, who uh, whose work you, you, you're probably familiar. Yeah, we've with. had him on this. He, he, yeah. 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 I mean, he's he's made a very very strong case for thinking of these as 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 a as a combined text. Mm. I think uh, also uh, the, the, if, we, if we talk, yeah. uh, sorry to interrupt, it, um, Edwin Bryant was also saying that um, I think the the presence in the Anu Yoga Anusasanam, um, Atta Yoga Anusasanam was a continuous. Now it continues the the, uh, the this, right. So it's potentially is kind of continuing something as you said with the Karika that is already there. That he's just kind of continuing the teaching yeah. of this this kind of thread of of thinking. Yes, indeed. Yes, uh, you, you're referring there to the the very opening sutra, mm-hmm. yeah, um, uh, Atta Yogan Jasanam, which we can translate some as as roughly and. And, and and well and and now an exposition of yoga, but uh, but but in, implying that yeah, it's not something that's novel to this text. It's something you know, something that's being that what I'm presenting, Atta Yoganushasanam, is an exposition of a body of teachings that sort of pre-exists. Yeah, I think you I think you're quite right. Um, where was I? So I was just I was just saying that these are these are two absolutely crucial foundational texts for the the Sankhya yoga tradition uh, we've got the Sankhya Karika and the yoga shastra both probably composed around the fourth or fifth centuries uh, CE and within those texts we find a lot of the key concepts that we're going to be you know dealing with in this conversation and you were, and just to go back to where where this came from, you were asking me about the the place of God mm, and how uh, duality within, came into, within yeah came to being from, from within the oneness the, yeah within the philosophy mm. yeah um, and and so we I think we we do well we we help ourselves if we refer to these two texts specifically um, and 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 ask the questions that raise the question well what's what if anything is the place of of God the concept of God in those in those textual sources and it's 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 somewhat different at least on the face of it um so i'll start with the the, the yoga sutra or the yoga shastra um ishwara uh, the concept of ishwara has a prominent place in the first pada uh in the the so-called samadhi pada so you know as as you and many many of the uh the viewers will will probably know um within the yoga uh, sutras as a whole, and perhaps especially within the Samadhi Pada, we have uh, more or less a list of sort of meditative objects or meditative options, we might say, you know, thing, things that one might um, focus one's attention mm, on mm. in order to cultivate a state of Samadhi. Um, and we, we get this throughout the text, and we, we a lot, uh, you know, there's, a, there's um, the, the, the third part of the Vibhuti Pada has, you know, a whole l- list of, of different objects, possible objects of meditation, and the different powers that one can can acquire. Uh, so it's not exclusively in the Samadhi Pada, but it, it, in the Samadhi Pada, one of the meditative uh, objects that's that's given is is Ishwara. Um, one can meditate on Ishwara. Ishwara Pranidhana is the, mm. the term that's used, which um, is open to 
various interpret uh, various sort of translations but uh, but uh, meditation on Ishwara or contemplation of Ishwara, those are, are I think, perfectly le legitimate translations of the of the, the term Ishwara Pranidhana. Um, and and so, so, of course, it raises the question, well, what is Ishwara? How are we to conceptualize, think about uh, Ishwara in a context of the of the yoga philosophy? Um, and the way that Ishwara is presented is as a special Purusha. Um, now, Purusha, as I said before, we can think of as, uh, as, a, as the source of consciousness, but a very common translation of Purusha would be self, mm, mm. Um, a little bit like the, uh, the more Vedantic term Atman, um, self, sometimes written with a capital S to indicate that there's something special. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a, it's a kind of spiritual, spiritual source of our being um uh that, that that concept represents and so purusha uh if we think of purusha as a self or the self ishwara is a special one of those uh, as defined in the in the yoga sutra special in what sense special in the sense that that purusha has never been tainted by um any kind of involvement in karmic activity that would be one you know one way of thinking about it so for most of us all of us um we are we are this spiritual you know source this spiritual essence in our true that is our true being um but there's a sense in which we've gone through our lives our multiple lifetimes uh through processes of reincarnation and so on not being fully attuned with that true that true self um so there's some sense in which we've been tainted by the world you know we've been we've been immersed in uh in forms of suffering forms of experience that are perhaps uh, gratifying in certain ways and uh, and troubling in other ways um but we've been we've been sort of engaged in in worldly activity in that in that way whereas ishwara has never mm. has never gone through that mm. um and and so Ishwara is defined as a kind of pure, pure self, mm. a pure uh, source of con source of consciousness, and hence a kind of ideal, a sort of spiritual ideal um, to meditate upon and to become absorbed in that spiritual quality, and thereby we might hope, according to the you know the yoga uh, thought and practice, we might hope to cultivate a, a deeper sense of spiritual purity in our own being through that meditation process. Mm. Um, but what, um, and, and so there are a few other things said about Ishwara in the, in the Yoga Sutra, including that Ishwara is the first guru, the first teacher, mm. um, which Whereabouts is, is that? Sort of, sort of, do, you know, do you know which sutra that is? Um, well, it's, it's, it comes very, so I think I think Ishwara Pranidhana is introduced at uh, Sutra 24 of the right. Samadhi Pada, yeah. and and uh, and uh, I might I don't know I might be one or two sutras out, but um, if I remember right, I think it's about Sutra 26, right. uh, where I Ishwara is, is defined as um, the the earliest, the Purva uh, Guru, mm -hmm. um, the uh, earliest or primary Guru teacher, sp spiritual preceptor. Now you can interpret that more or less metaphorically. You know, you could think of um, of Ishwara as some sort of maybe an avatar, so, uh, somebody that incarnated 
in human form um, in order to be a, 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 te- a sort of sage-like guru teacher to the earliest practitioners of yoga. Or if one, one wanted to go more sort of metaphorical or symbolic, one could think of, uh, again, Ishwara as that, um, as that inspirational mm. ideal mm. that one is aiming to uh, resemble yeah, in some right. way through cultivating one's own spirituality. And, and hence a teacher in that sense, a teacher in the sense of the ideal to be aimed for and that which one sort of learns from in that way. Um, but there's not any, I, there's no kind of devotional aspect to it, is it? I, I, that's what always stands out in Samkhya for me is it, it's quite kind of cold and analytical. We don't find the devotive aspect that we find obviously in Vedanta, etc. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's Gyani yoga, isn't it? So the, strangely, the Purusha of Ishvara is defined as the ultimate Purusha, but we still don't, we still don't worship it. It's kind of used for our own good, as right. I understand it, kind of like, well, I'll get what I can out of Purusha rather than seeing, which kind of seems strange to me in a way, philosophically, that you've recognized the ultimate, you know, the ultimate Purusha, and you don't worship it. Right? You just kind of think, well, I'll, I'll meditate on it to get as, as far as I can. Right? Yeah. I, yes, I, I think I think you're right. Um, I don't think devotion is strongly emphasised at all. But I would I would just qualify it slightly by saying that among the you know the, among the ways of understanding this notion of pranidhana, you know, I, I emphasise the meditation, the contemplation sort of side of it. Devotion is is kind of part of that concept as well. Um, it's but the way yeah the way that it's described within the uh, the Yoga Sutra and the primary commentary. It doesn't. No, it doesn't emphasise very much the the sort of bhakti side, mm. the, the really devotional side of, of practice. Do you think it's there though? Do you, um, do you, feel, it's, do you yeah. feel it's there? Because I mean, obviously, Samkhya philosophy pervades the Gita yeah. as well, and then and in the Gita we find a different mm. a different uh, presentation where when um, Krishna reveals himself to Arjuna, uh, you know, any in all these forms, Arjuna falls kind of flat on the ground and, and buries his face, right? You know, and kind of, you know, begs forgiveness, right? So there is that, I mean, and we feel devote to me is the con- constant refrain through the Gita, which is also Samkhya, as I understand it, right? So it, you know, maybe maybe it is there. Yeah. 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 Yes, no, you, 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 it's quite right to point point this out that, um, uh, I mean, as I, as I hinted earlier, uh, Samkhya concepts are pervasive through um, Indian philosophical tradition um, along with uh, what we might call uh, various forms of Vedanta uh, uh, thought um, and the Gita is is one of those one of those places where we we find um, key Sankhya concepts running uh, right through the text um, and and yet not not fully consistently so you know the, the Gita is an amalgamation I think of uh, of different sort of philosophical perspectives and and, and does a very um, remarkable a remarkable job of, of uh, sort of uh, in some ways synthesizing in other ways just bringing together into um, into sort of proximity to one another different philosophical um, ideas and concepts and of course yeah um, a devotion to Krishna, devotion to a divine, um, uh, to a div- divinity, is is absolutely central to the to the Bhagavad Gita, um, and so the Gita gives us one model of how uh, Sankhya ideas can be brought within a, a sort of theistic framework, as we we might mm. say. Um, 
I just want to re return briefly to both the Yoga Sutra and also say something about the Sankhya Karaka in relation to this theme of, of devotion. Um, now, the, the practice that's recommended in, in the Yoga Sutra um, in that the, the is the practice of Ishwara Pranidhana is, uh, is meditation upon the, the mantra Om. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's sort of repetition of the mantra Om to the point where the mantra Om is kind of filling the, this, the, you know, this vibration is filling one's consciousness. So that's, that's, well, it's, it's noteworthy. It's an interesting point that, um, that, 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 that is the way that, um, and it, it's the, um, uh, it's the, so it's not a devotional, it's not a devotional form of, of, of practice as you, as you, uh, sort of mm. indicate. Um, and yet, and yet it's, uh, it's a form of absorption in the, in the divine, in this case, the sort of divine sound. Um, so the, I think the, you know, drawing sharp distinctions between what's devotion and what's more, some, something more meditative and contemplative is not not an easy it's not a straightforward yeah. task here i think there's you know you, you could think of it as 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 a kind of uh as a kind of devotion because what is devotion if it's not um sort of becoming immersed and absorbed in the object mm. of devotion um so there's a, there's a meditative contemplative dimension to devotion itself would, would that be the aim of samkhya um, the i mean just to just kind of flesh out that this this kind of picture of samkhya for people would that be the aim a kind of absorption no. into into spirit like so differentiation of the purusha back from matter from its kind of ensnarement in matter right. and uh, and you know and essentially transcendental aspirations really to to escape the world of matter and kind of reside someplace else with um with the the, the ultimate kind of daddy purusha as it were <laughs> ah yes well let's let's think so in in the, in the case of um, the sankhya karika so there are there are various kinds of what we could call um we, we could call them sort of theistic versions of sankhya and and the bhagavad gita what's presented there is is one instance um but what we find in the Sankhya Karaka is something a little bit more pared down, um, not quite so um, uh, sort of religiously, theistically um, uh, elaborate. Elaborate. It's, um, it's it's a little bit more austere. We could think, of, I suppose, in, in its conceptualization, which um, which I, I think you were you were uh, sort of suggesting mm -hmm. earlier, and I think you, you, I think you're quite quite right in this, um, and. And so, yeah, a couple of things I want to say. One is, despite that, there are there are there are the seeds, you know, the possible seeds, the germs, as it were, of a devotional attitude, even within the Sankhya Karaka. Uh, and we find this towards the end of the text, where the author, Ishwara Krishna, is referring to the the sage, the Paramarshi, the prime uh, Rishi or seer or sage, who he is attributed to whom he is attributing the foundation the sort of founding of the sankhya philosophy uh he's attributing that to this figure called the paramarshi now paramarshi is a title and most commentators think that that title refers to uh kapila um who is a is a renowned sage within the ancient vedic uh tradition and subsequent to that um and just this, just as an aside, actually, the uh, Kapila is, is is regarded as an avatar of Vishnu. Mm. Um, 
according to the tradition. Mm. Now, that's, there's no reference to that in the Sankhikarika, mm. but um, there's, there's the association with Kapila as the founder of the Sankhya philosophy and, again, according to tra tradition, an avatar, an incarnation of Vishnu. Um, so a sort of divine sage-like figure. Mm. Um, and he is, as I say, regarded as the founder of Sankhya philosophy and is stated to be such obliquely because he's referred to as Paramarshi rather than explicitly as Kapila, but as Paramarshi within the Sankhya Karakar itself. Now, Ishwara Krishna doesn't doesn't then say, and hence we should bow down in, in, um, in obeisance and uh, devotion to that sage. But I think nevertheless, the seed is there. It's, it's part of this, this kind of standard um, lineage type structure where you've got this founding figure who is implicitly regarded mm. as a great, holy, divine, sage-like figure. Um, so I think there's even the, you know, as I say, the seeds of a, of a devotional attitude mm. within the Sankhikarika mm -hmm. it's, itself. So I wanted to, to say that, and I think there was something else, but it's, it slipped my mind for the time <laughs> yeah. being. So let's, uh, let's, All right. let's yeah, let's well, move, we've got, you've on. got other questions where they came from. I'm all about, um, you speak a lot, I mean, you, spoke, you, you sent me an excellent article, actually, on free will and determinism, as it you know, relates to this Purusha Prakriti idea, because if ever, if pretty much all of us is enmeshed in Prakriti, and uh, Purusha is always separate from Prakriti, how, how did that, well, first of all, why do why need to do anything? Because Purusha is already pure, always pure, you know, and never actually tainted by hypocrisy. And secondly, if we were to do anything, how can we possibly make a move? Because everything is ensnared in Prakriti. How is it possible ever to get to mm. Purusha? There must be some gateway or bridge. Otherwise, we're trapped completely deterministically in this constant, constant spiral. Yeah. Yeah, the, these these are are indeed difficult interpretive questions, and in some ways they would, in order to arrive at a satisfactory answer, I think we would have to go beyond what we're given in the in the traditional sources. Um, so my my sort of interpretive preference is to think, what are these texts trying to do? What are they trying to present us with? And I think the answer to that is not ultimately a completely uh, watertight, fully worked out metaphysical system of everything, right. um, which in a sense we would need if we were going to answer at least some of those, those questions to do with um, you know, the, the ultimate relation between Purusha and Prakriti and how that bears upon free will mm. and so on. So what, what we really get, I think, is maybe just implied answers, but answers that if we take, the, if we try to push them too far, I do suspect that we're going to end up with something that, that tends to break down um, you know, co uh, in terms of, of conceptual mm -hmm. coherence. Um, and and you know thinking about it charitably you know being charitable to the the authors the composers of the systems themselves it's just that 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 probably wasn't what they were they were in the business of doing they weren't trying to make it all completely um uh coherent theoretically but rather were presenting us with materials that would facilitate um an adequate level of understanding of the of the practical uh uh, dimensions of the of the system so 
I don't. That's that's not going to be very satisfactory uh, if somebody is looking for a for a theoretical answer. But uh, but I can I can say more. I can say more about the you know the relation between Purusha and Prakriti as presented in the in the systems. Mm. Um, is there a bridge between the two? And what is that? Yes. Mm. Um, the closest we get to a bridge is the concept of of buddhi. Um, and uh, buddhi is it's related to the word buddha. Um, you know, buddhi is the the sort of faculty of I I, I have an unusual translation of it. I, I translate it as intentional consciousness, which is a technical term. But what what I mean by intentional consciousness is consciousness of something. So if we think of of purusha as consciousness in itself as it were you know sort of uh how i mean i think that's a difficult concept to get one's head around but uh, but consciousness in itself independently of any content mm. uh or ob- object so mechanism experience. of consciousness in potentiality um. consciousness in potentiality sounds like yeah. a good yeah that sounds like a good way of thinking of it and, and that, that's that's a bit why i hedged earlier and said the source yeah. of consciousness yeah. um as as a as a as a attempt at a at a definition of purusha, precisely because um, it, it, it's entirely understandable, and I think um, and I, I think it's probably the right thing to think of consciousness as, as standardly having some content to it. You know, what what is consciousness independently of any content? Yeah. As, I, as I say, I think that's that's a that's a difficult concept, and it's one that uh, maybe scholars of mysticism have to grapple with. I think it. I think it's there in the Sankhya philosophy. I think Sankhya philosophy claims that there is such a thing as as pure consciousness, independent of any consciousness, and that is that is purusha. But th- but figuring out how to conceptualise that is is something else. So we can think of it as potential consciousness or uh, the source of consciousness. That's purusha, and then buddhi, as I was just saying, is consciousness of you know consciousness directed towards consciousness with some content to it. Um, and yet, buddhi is placed on the on the prakriti side of the of the dualism. Um, so it's it's not easy to know exactly how we're uh, how we're to think about buddhi. But buddhi is that um, it's as I say the closest we get to mm, a bridge. Mm. It's the you know the, the the way that the Sankhya philosophy would put it is it's the most subtle. It's the most refined. It's the most sensitive. Um, level or layer or aspect or component of the manifestation of, of prakriti yeah. so it's that which enables um purusha to have experience of anything at all um and and buddhi is that that consciousness of mm. Uh, mm. That's, that's the way I, I think of it um, kind of, don't they also say it's a kind of yeah. reflection, like a kind of mirror, really? So it's not, it's not mm, actually yeah. inherent in the in the material being that's all, all always prakriti, but somehow reflected upon right. that. So you they kind of get out of the way of you know some purusha being contained in prakriti, which is you know impossible, right? So somehow the the, the purusha is reflected upon this in, inert inert kind of substance or something like that but i mean there's no ultimate way to, to get out of the dualism yeah. really is there you're, you're always stuck between finding this bridge between these two concepts which which kind of aren't aren't the same you know aren't the same thing yeah but no i think i think i think bringing in the the, the mirror analogy is is a good uh, is a good way to go uh it's 
just as uh, another aside, it's a, it's a it's a common strategy. It's a common approach within um, Indian. I think it's fair to say Indian philosophy generally, but um, but uh, include certainly including the Sankhya and, and Yoga uh, pr- presentation of ideas is to make abundant use of of images or analogies, um, including that of a, a reflective surface. So although we don't find it within the uh, the, the uh, the sutras, or indeed within the Sankhikarakas themselves, we do find it in certain commentarial sources. The image of normally it's a it's a sort of body of water where you've got the the sort of surface of the water, which is the reflective surface, and under ordinary circumstances, that reflective surface is distorted. Um, because it's it's choppy, you know, you got you got the, the various ripples, and we might think of those ripples as the as the, the what are referred to as the vrittis in um, in in the yoga uh, philosophy. Um, so the literally the turnings um, of chitta. So chitta vritti um, is is a term that's mm-hmm. used early on in the in the yoga sutra to refer to the the sort of turnings of the mind, the the various uh, modifications of uh, of, of, of awareness or consciousness um, and ordinarily those are yeah they're, they're turning they're, they're rippling they're, they're, they're churning about um, and through the the meditative practice uh, in principle uh, one is uh, one is able to calm quell the the surface of that uh, of that uh, metaphorical body of water Precisely in order that uh, the the true self, whether we call it purusha or in in yoga uh, drashta, the, the the seer, is in some way reflected in the water. By analogy, the, you know sometimes the analogy of the moon being reflected in on the surface of mm. water. The moon being this beautiful uh, pristine orb um, that is uh, the reflect the reflection is often distorted on the water but if the water becomes still then the the, the reflection become can become pure and that um, yeah that's a, that's an image that's the image that we're given for this kind of if not a bridge then at least um, some connecting interface uh, that enables purusha to um, to become absorbed in its in its in its own true self and is that how purusha will escape the, the kind of karmic regression where it whereby it's always in kind of ensconced in karma and can never kind of see itself or how what's the, i suppose what i'm asking is what's the position of karma as, as a kind of central kind of uh, tenet of, of samkhya right mm-hmm. yeah yeah we, we we don't find um any de- any detailed exposition of the the concept of of karma in the Sankhikarika, for example, but it's it's sort of implicit. It's it's at least implicit in the in the background. It's in fact this this whole um, sort of sansara reincarnation karma complex of ideas is implicit behind um, much uh, much Indian philosophy. And and it's it's almost so taken for granted that uh, it's it's relatively rare to find a detailed exposition of what of how, of how it all how it all works, um, and so we don't find that either in the in uh, in Sankhya or in in yoga. We do we do um, have the concept of uh, so in, in yoga we have the concept of sanskara, um, you know these these things that are often translated as something like impressions. Or mental impressions, impressions that, that we receive through our experiences, 
and that are in some way embedded in our memory or in our in our mind and that form the seeds of, of future activity it could be mental activity it could be uh, it could be sort of physical actions um, and that it's thought that, that has something you know very deep to do with the the mechanism of, of, of karma that we we have certain we undergo certain experiences they get embedded within our uh, our, our ways of thinking maybe they, they form habits and you know, patterns of behavior that we then enact we repeat and they get further entrenched mm. and the um, uh, and they get so deeply entrenched that they 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 persist across lifetimes you know from one reincarnation to another and that's i mean um, so all mm, of that sorry yeah. i wanted to say i mean it, it also seems to me that without reincarnation the whole thing falls apart right so you're kind of in 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 the you know in the beginnings but you know for example in the gita the first the thing that krishna says to arjuna is like basically you've got to believe in reincarnation and this here's the argument for it right like if you it, I mean, maybe you'll, you'll say differently, but it seems like if you don't take reincarnation as fundamental, then basically the, the, the law of karma kind of falls apart, really, because you can't see it over one life. Then necessarily people get their just desserts, as it were. So we're back to Plato, you know, asking, you know, saying, you know, well, what about the just man? You know, like, what is there any inherency about being just right? Because someone might might do bad actions and still benefit in this life, seemingly so. Right. So um, do we have to accept reincarnation um, to... To, for this to make sense or is there a way that samkhya can get around that as well mm, um i think the short short answer is yes that um that uh, it's uh, as i said before it's implicit within the within the philosophical framework um the whole idea that uh, that this this life that we're undergoing now is not the not the one and only for us in some sense of us and then it's you know it's, it's rather complicated exactly what you know what is that 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 carries on from one one life to another but um um but yes yeah, so, i mean if so the 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 Sankhya Karaka starts off in the very first verse by saying that the, you know, the philosophical inquiry stems from the recognition that we're undergoing various forms of dukkha or suffering you know, or dissatisfactoriness, um, which is also, as many people will know, um, the, the starting point of, of, of Buddhism mm. and the starting point of other other kind of soteriological systems, systems that are designed to bring about some sort of liberation from. And then the question is, well, liberation from what? Well, liberation from suffering. But if if the if the way of achieving liberation from suffering was was simply to cease mm. living, mm. then it the, it wouldn't be obvious what the what the problem was would one would have to go through this lifetime and um and maybe this lifetime isn't fully satisfactory and one undergoes various forms of suffering but if if at the end of this lifetime that you know those deep deeply uh, embedded uh, forms of suffering come to an end then that's that's the solution but that isn't the solution because um because because it's implied that there is uh reincarnation um and and hence even when we when we complete this lifetime we haven't completed you know the ongoing cycles mm -hmm. and so the the, pre the presence the pervasiveness of suffering in life goes beyond the present life and that's that's what generates the uh, the, the 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 problem that is to be um resolved or escaped from through not just philosophical inquiry of course but um uh but through the uh, various forms of practice that so uh, that need to be that need to accompany that yeah um as shakespeare says uh 
perchance to dream, you know, <laughs> to die perchance <laughs> to dream. Right? There's the rub, right? It's like the possibility, you know, the, mm. the possibility of something, you know, other than just uh, just getting through it, uh, that something might happen, and, and then mm. and then you're in trouble because you can't just kill yourself. Which, uh, but what you know, what's the what's the suffering in the first mm. place? What I mean, I, I, I have I, mean, I have to admit that the the curricular is a dense tome that I have. I've struggled with. I know how do they um, how do they contextualize why we why we are suffering if we don't know already. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, no. In, in, interesting. I mean, it's it's funny that it's the it's the kind of starting point, um, the recognition that we do undergo various forms of suffering, but um, uh, that's it, it's more like the starting point rather than the um, the well. I was going to say it's, it's it's not that the question is then why do we why do we suffer? It's more just how do we alleviate? How do we um, liberate ourselves from that suffering? I think that that that's probably the the way to phrase or phrase the question. You know, the, the, so the question the emphasis is on how do we overcome? How do we get beyond? How do we transcend mm. that suffering predicament? Mm. Um, and the question why are we suffering in the first place is a, is just a slightly different one but it's but it's but they are closely related of course you know because the, ultimately the answer to the the question why do we suffer is going to be something along the lines of because we falsely identify ourselves we uh, we identify with something that we are not uh, and and the thing that we identify with undergoes suffering um, and so what we need to do in order to transcend the suffering is to stop identifying, falsely identifying with that which suffers. But still, you, you, you might think, well, that, that, still, that's not quite an answer to the question. Why? Why does that suffering yeah. arise in the first yeah. place? And um, yeah, I think maybe there's a there's a sense in which that that question is not uh, not addressed. It's not the not thought to be the question that's important. The question that's important is recognize that we suffer and and let's work on progressing towards a state of less suffering and then in, then finally liberation from suffering altogether. Mm, mm. I re- recognize it's been a bit of a whistle-stop tour between uh, a number of points in the, and, and, you know, discursive ideas, but I, I wanted to get as much out of uh, out of you as I could. I mean, finally, let, just, to, just to finish it off, I know you've done a lot of comparative work and that's a particular interest of yours in comparing you know, and contrasting Western philosophy to Eastern, right? And, uh, and also, you know, Promoting Eastern philosophy as a serious rigor uh, uh, philosophically uh, as a discipline, which you know until recently it was kind of dismissed as religion or mysticism or something, you know, and now that's just, you know we're starting to see comparative to um, particularly you, you mentioned Kant a number of times I think in previous things I've listened to. Um, can you draw any other parallels between you know, Wittgenstein? Obviously, you've written a whole book on. Uh, can you draw any other easy or simplistic par- you know parallels for our listenership? Uh, Maybe that they might, you know, kind of relate this philosophy to to Western ideas as well. You know? Yes, yeah, I can I can certainly try mm. to to do that. Um, um, I think relating relating uh, these philosophical systems to Wittgenstein would be would be difficult. Um, I would I would I mean I, I I'm very strongly influenced by Wittgenstein uh, Wittgenstein's approach to the study of. Uh, various forms of philosophy and and also religious uh, systems but that's more because uh, Wittgenstein in his later work was very um, eager to give close attention to the way that words terms concepts are used 
within their within their, within the contexts where they are used and and rather than sort of detaching them from those contexts so as a general methodological approach i think uh, i think the contextualization that uh, wittgenstein encourages us to do is is helpful but when it comes to drawing analogies between uh, sort of classical Indian and, uh, and European forms of philosophy. I've, I've um, looked towards, yes, Immanuel Kant, as you, as you say, and also uh, what gets called the phenomenological uh, philosophical tradition within uh, European philosophy. So I'll just say something, I mean, it's, it's difficult to say it briefly, mm. uh, but I'll, I'll try to say something fairly briefly about uh, phenomenology and uh, how I think that that can provide a useful analogy for mm. what's going on in psych uh, thought and practice. Um, one way to put it is this, that, that phenomenology is concerned with the investigation of experience um, and hence the, the investigation of how things appear to us in consciousness. And so the, that is the driving question of uh, a phenomenological philosophy, is how do things appear to us in consciousness? And so that can be, a, one, one can begin with a sort of descriptive approach, you know, how, just how do, how do things appear? How do we experience things? But then also there's a, there's a sort of, uh, what are the conditions for us to have the kind of experience that we have? What sort of um, faculties do we need to have in order to, uh, to to have those experiences? What do we need to be able to mm. do in order to have the experiences that we that we do have? And my sense is that um, that 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 question is also at the heart of of Sankhya philosophy. What what needs to be in place in order for us to have the kind of experience that we mm. do, the kinds of experiences mm. that we do? Um, because what we haven't we haven't talked much about is the fact that within the Sankhikarika we find a um, a fairly elaborate system of different principles. Um, I mentioned buddhi, but there's also multiple others. There's uh, ahankara, which gets translated as um, uh, the principle of ind individuation or egoism, or I translate it as egoity, the, the sense of being being a self, being a, an I, being mm. an individual. Um, and then we've got lots of others. We've got, they've got five sense capacities. We've got five um, so-called action capacities. We've got the five uh, forms of content of sensory experience. And we've got the five... Um, uh, forms of material objects, uh, and and then there's a, there's, a, there's another one that I missed out, which is manas, which is the principle of, of j just just translated as mind, um, but which seems to serve a kind of synthesizing function. It brings these different um, uh, aspects of experience together to form a coherent whole for us. And so you might say, well, that's that's one answer to the question: How is it that we come to have the kind of experiences that we do? Well. It, what it requires, among other things, is not only um, the the various components of experience. So the you know whether it be the the visual and the auditory and the the, the gustatory and the olfactory mm. and the and the tactile kind of sensations. We need those in order to have the kind of experience that we have. We also need something that's going to combine them together, that's going to synthesize them, that's going to bring them within one sort of um, one sort of uh, 
perspective, one viewpoint as a cohesive, coherent, experiential package. And that, um, on my interpretation, is the is the primary function of the of the faculty of, of manas, mm. uh, of mind. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the other other components of the system uh, perform other other functions. But it, it, it seems to me that a plausible uh, that what this system is, is providing uh, an answer to, you know, a plausible uh, question that it's addressing is what are the necessary conditions for experience to occur mm. as it mm. does and and the analogy that i'm i'm you know it's a it's a, a fairly loose analogy but the analogy that i'm drawing here is that that in a sense is the same question that's being asked by yeah. the phenomenological philosophical tradition mm. within european thought um and so the the you know the benefit of using the analogy is not just so that we can say oh look sank is doing that uh, certain phenomenologists are doing that. Isn't that interesting? They're doing yeah. something similar. It's rather that we can we can actually use the the sort of answers that we provide that are provided by one system in order to illuminate what's yeah, going on exactly. in in yeah. the other. Yeah. Um, use it as a kind of lens as yeah. a as a um, uh, through which to 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 develop a, 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 an interpretation. Yeah, in comparing to kind of develop understanding on both sides rather than simply you know validating eastern thought by kind of pairing it you know to western thought oh you know we see it here as well therefore it's valid or you know yeah um absolutely well um yes we could go a lot more into that but i think we'll leave it there for today and uh, all that remains to be said is um thank you dr nick valley for coming on and it's been a fantastic chat albeit short too short um and i hope people appreciate this um if you do then um obviously remember to subscribe to whatever we're doing and uh you'll see more of this stuff thanks again nick It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Adam.